The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. Thursday edition of the PFT PM Podcast. I think this is the first time in a long time we've had four episodes in four days. And the news drove it Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday because Monday it was Kyler Murray and Kareem Hunt. Tuesday it was Antonio Brown saying goodbye to Pittsburgh. Wednesday it was the Joe Flacco trade and the the bold prediction from Jay Glazer about the Odell Beckham possible trade that set everyone on Twitter ablaze. Thursday, there really hasn't been anything big today, although who knows, as I'm saying this, something's probably going to break. But I had scheduled an interview with Al Michaels, the great Al Michaels, the one and only Al Michaels for today. And I asked him, as we were corresponding via email, how much time he had. He said, I got about 45 minutes. I'm like, well, I'll take 45 minutes. So you will get 45 minutes of a conversation. And that's it for today. I'm not answering any questions. I'm not going to babble about anything. There may be some things that I would otherwise want to talk about, but I thought the best way to go today would be to devote the entirety of the podcast, except for the two or three minutes of your life that I've wasted by setting it up, to a 45-minute conversation with the voice of Sunday Night Football, Al Michaels. (laughs) Very few guests who are on this program cause me to forget while giving their answers that at some point I'm actually going to have to ask another question. Al Michaels is one of those very few. Al, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome back. How's everything? It's great, but Mike, that is a very tough standard to live up to. I mean, you want me to hit a a grand slam every time? Would you settle for like a a three-run homer or or a two-run triple or something? I mean, it's a lot of pressure. Well, I I know, but I'm serious. Every time that you've ever done this, I, I find myself at some point, and even though I'm aware of it now, I will do it again, where I'm listening to you and I'll be like, wow, this is great, this is great, and then all of a sudden it hits me. Oh crap! I have to say something at some point. So yeah, it's it's more pressure on me than you actually. You just do your thing, and the rest of us will just sit back and and be entertained. I just can't let myself be too entertained by it. And we were entertained. Let me segue right into it. I'm very smooth here, and I'm very professional. I've learned from listening to the best like you. The 2008 NFL season is behind us. Last week on Pro Football Talk Live, one of the questions we took up is how we would remember the season. When I tell you 2018 season, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I think the first thing would be the New England Patriots doing it again and cementing their legacy as one of the great, if not the greatest, dynasty ever. When you go back and you look at great dynasties in sports, and clearly you go back to maybe the New York Yankees of the 40s and 50s, that was a different time and a different setup. I mean, the Yankees did that in a 16-team league with no restraints in terms of salaries and all of the rest. And to see what the Patriots have done in this century and, of course, this past year, and a lot of people did not expect them to do what they have done uh, and to do it in a situation where you have 32 teams, 
you have salary caps, you have the draft the way it's constructed to, to make the poorer teams better. Uh, I'll, I'll look back and think that that would be the number one thing on my mind. And maybe number two or three or uh, somewhere up near the top would be the fact that for a while a lot of people thought, you know, the NFL uh, was having so many problems and not that they still aren't, but people seem to get by it. And it's uh, cemented the NFL clearly as the uh, the preeminent sports league, uh, not only of this era, but maybe ever, because they've actually, you know, lapped the field as, as big as pro basketball has become, and, you know, baseball is baseball and all of the rest. Uh, it's the NFL, and the NFL is one of the great sports properties ever. Television knows this. Uh, the networks fall over each other to, all, all over each other to make sure they uh, retain or secure the rights to it. Uh, and they've lapped the field in that regard. And I want to start there. i got a lot to ask you about the Patriots and how they fit and how they have done what they've done. But as it relates to the NFL reestablishing itself, it it just kind of happened. And I don't know why it happened. I don't know whether it's the scheduling of games by Howard Katz and company, big games in big spots, the scoring that we saw throughout the regular season. Forget about the Super Bowl and some of the playoff games. But throughout the regular season, it was pinball scoring that I think – caught the attention of a lot of people, efforts to speed up the pace of the game, efforts to reduce commercial time. I don't know what it was. Can you pinpoint one or two things that caused football to rebound the way that it did last season? Well, it's a combination of factors, and you can start with some individuals. I mean, Patrick Mahomes became a gigantic star. People could not wait to see him. In fact, I ran into Joe Lacob, one of the owners of the Golden State Warriors recently at a restaurant, And we started to talk about his team, and I said, you know, in my mind right now, there are two guys in sports who are must-see television, Steph Curry and Patrick Mahomes. Now, granted, there are many, many others, but when you have somebody like Mahomes come along and the way the Chiefs played this year and and how exciting they were, not only a good team but an exciting team, uh, that helped. I think, and Mike, you know, you and I have discussed this through the years, it's great theater. The NFL is not only reality television, it's unscripted television. It looks so great on TV. I mean, I've been in this business for a long time, and I'm even blown away sitting there doing these games and watching how they are produced and televised. And you think of the technological advances through the years, HGTV, Skycam takes you almost into the huddle. And inside the face mask, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, and it's a one-take thing, and it's not a movie where you've got 15 takes. I mean, to me, some of the the unsung heroes in in television are the directors, these guys who are doing it on the fly, and God forbid they should make a mistake, and they all die over every perceived mistake they make, and they don't make very many. But this, it just looks great. I mean, it's theater. It's theater, and it's live, and there's really very few things like live television and the NFL just televises beautifully. So, again, it's a combination of factors. But to me, that is a, a very relevant and important piece of the, uh, of the pie. 
And it really is amazing with all the different camera shots, all the angles, how quickly it moves from one to the next, and it's up close on the quarterback, and then it's a shot of the coach, and it gives you that sense of drama unfolding before your very eyes. Al, I remember back in the 70s when I first discovered the NFL, the first big innovation was the reverse angle instant replay, where you got to see the play again, not not you know from the angle that you just saw, but they, have, they actually have a camera on the other side of the field. That was a big deal. I can remember the block letters on the screen reverse angle like this is a special thing we've just discovered and now it really has exploded into what have 35 cameras at any given game and you capture everything and you're right we take for granted how seamlessly the the production moves and and that story is told in real time and i'm old enough to remember when they would put up a graphic that said instant replay and that was a big deal obviously and that came in through uh Oh, into being in probably the 60s at some point. Uh, and that was a huge deal. And I remember the reverse angle. Now it's, there is no place in that stadium that is not available to some camera. I mean, when you start putting, as they did a few years ago, cameras in the pylon, you can put them anywhere. And through the years, you know, we've watched television take you from, you know, the high shots from the 50 and there would be two cameras on the 20 and maybe one in the end zone. To where we are right now, there's nothing that can't be covered. It doesn't matter. And it's taken the fan to places where he couldn't go. I mean, it's so great to watch, you know, a team come out of their locker room and through the bowels of the stadium and then out into the the stadium itself. And just the way, you know, as I say, I mean, I've been in this business my whole life, and I sometimes look at that monitor in front of me, and I'm, I'm in awe. You mentioned Patrick Mahomes and the impact that he's had on the National Football League. And I think he's been the most significant arrival at quarterback since Dan Marino back in 83-84. 84, his second season when he really established himself. But Marino was just a new and improved version of what we've always seen. The thing about Mahomes that strikes me, Al, we've never seen a guy play quarterback the way he plays quarterback on a consistent basis. And it feels revolutionary, and it makes me wonder how many kids out there are going to start mimicking him and how many Patrick Mahomes there will be 5, 10, 15 years from now, guys who see what you can do as a quarterback and start doing it all the time and developing the skills that they may have that Mahomes has shown them the human body does possess if you you do have the ability to use your body that way i agree and i think a lot of kids will try to mimic him but you know how many people can actually duplicate what he does a lot of it has to do i think with his baseball background as well and of course it's well known his dad was a a 10 or 11 year major league veteran pitcher in his career he grew up you know playing both sports and basketball as well we've all seen that video of you know what he can do on a basketball court i mean he is a He's, a, I don't want to say a freak of nature in terms of athletic ability, but he can do things in so many sports that, that nobody can do. I wonder, you know, I wonder what his score would be in bowling. This kid can do everything. <laughs> and on top of it, Mike, too, you know, having gotten to know him, because we did them a number of times this year, and uh, we got Chris Collinsworth and I got to talk to him on the field before a game last year when he was the backup to Alex Smith. He's a really good kid. I think he's got a, a great head on his shoulders, had a really good upbringing, and uh, I don't see him going off the rails. You know, it's almost like, in a way, you see a guy and you go, this is too good to be true, and then all of a sudden, you know what happens. I think 
a good thing for Patrick is the fact that maybe he's playing in Kansas City as opposed to, you know, who knows what happens in New York. Not that you can't keep your head about you in New York or, or other places or Chicago or whatever, but I think it's, it's a pretty good deal for him in that circumstance with that organization run on such a classy level by Clark Hunt and the Hunt family. And Andy Reid, having Andy Reid as a coach is tremendous. I mean, this kid's got everything going for him, and I think he's going to have, a barring you know, a significant injury, a spectacular career. And what amazes me about what Andy Reid was able to do in 2017, the Chiefs started out 5-0, and they hit a rough spot, and I've heard the tales about all the things Mahomes was doing in practice that year and that people knew this guy was going to be special. And to resist the temptation to throw him into the fray until Andy Reid thought he was ready, it would have been very easy when you're in that slide to flip the switch from Alex Smith to Patrick Mahomes and let him go do his thing. But Reid decided we're going to wait, we're going to wait, even though they could have maybe advanced farther than they did in the 2017 season. And that may have made him even more prepared, more able to deal with everything that goes into being an NFL quarterback to the point where he could have full success this year by not throwing him out there and letting him be what would have been, you know, a huge flash in the pan in 2017. Yeah, I think uh, there's some definite validity in what you're saying, Mike. I think the other thing that happened along the way, we keep forgetting Alex Smith led the National Football League in passer rating in 2017. So if you had, you know, pulled the plug on Alex and Andy was not going to do that before the season. But let's say Alex had not gotten off to a good start. He obviously had a very good year when you lead the league in, in that department. Um, Andy's very patient. Andy's extremely smart. You know, those of us who have followed this game for a lot of years and have gotten to know all of these people, I don't know anybody who's not rooting for Andy Reid to win a Super Bowl someday. Because you always have... In his particular case, it was the case, I think, back to Bill Cowher before the Super Bowl in Detroit when they beat Seattle. It's the, as John Madden said in our scene said to that Super Bowl, he's got that yeah butt around him. And, you know, I mentioned this on the air, and I don't, I don't want to belabor it, but, you know, Andy's got that thing about, you know, but, but. So, you know, I think anybody who knows Andy and has been around him for years is rooting for him to someday, you know, that Lombardi trophy. Yeah, and I agree with you completely. And it looked like this year was going to be the year, and it was the Patriots who went into Arrowhead Stadium and pulled off that victory with some of the most clutch throws we've seen in Tom Brady's career, both in the fourth quarter and in overtime. And you were talking earlier about why the Patriots or what the Patriots have been able to accomplish. I, I, somebody said to me recently, you know, it's a copycat league. Why don't people just copy the Patriots? I, I don't think anybody knows what the Patriots do. I don't think anybody can copy what the Patriots do. And I think it ultimately goes back to Bill Belichick, that he has a capacity, he has an intelligence, he has uh, an ability to both delegate some things but keep some things to himself and trust himself to know what to do. And it all adds up to a guy who constantly, constantly gets his team ready, no matter what happens happened last year they forget about last year they reset to this year whether they win whether they lose whether it's heartbreaking whether it's a championship and and they just have mastered it from your perspective why do you think they've cracked the code that no other team seems to be able to crack on a consistent basis well i think i think bill is bill is just brilliant on so many levels first of all you start with scheming and how he constructs his defenses and by the way people should not think he's only involved with the defense, even though, you know, Josh McDaniels is the offensive coordinator. You know, Bill has a lot of input 
on that side of the ball, too. He understands everything. He, um, I mean, his defensive game plans are off the charts. What he was able to do against the Rams, uh, and again, everybody said, well, he had two weeks. Bill Belichick could have an hour and 30 minutes, and he could still come up with a plan. And they've got this, you know, I think Chris once called it Collinsworth, the amoeba defense, where they've got guys all over the place. You don't even know who's where. You don't know who's coming from where. And I guess you just have to ask Jared Goff about that as well in the Rams' offensive line. Where are they coming from? I swear there were times during that game I thought the Patriots had 15 guys on the field. I mean, they had 11, obviously, but where are they coming from? And and he can take – he's not afraid to do things. I mean, remember, they got rid of Richard Seymour one year. They got rid of Jamie Collins one year. They thought he was the best defender on that team. Bill, he does things differently. And, again, it's – you know, everything is very – strict around the Patriots, but he controls so much of what goes on. So that's why even though there's a lot of stuff, gossip, stories around the Patriots, he never lets that really get into the locker room or the practice field or any of the preparation. And, you know, Robert Kraft runs a tremendous franchise. Uh, As I say, I go back to what we talked about at the the very top. I can't think of a dynasty like this in, in my lifetime. And a lot of it, you know, Bill has to get a tremendous amount of credit for leaving, you know, it's a big cliche, obviously, no stone unturned. The other thing he does, Mike, there's a tremendous emphasis on special teams. Tremendous. And not that he's the only coach who does that, obviously. We all understand the importance of special teams and, and how it's evolved through the years. But I tell you what, the most effusive I've ever heard Bill and God Almighty, we've had, I don't know, the, dozens and dozens of meetings with him through the years. Uh, the most effusive I've ever heard him speak of a player would be Matthew Slater. I brought up Matthew Slater's name this year in a meeting, and Bill went, you know, he went on for 10 minutes about what this guy means to the team. So when you see Belichick, you know, here's a guy, I mean, the brain is always working. Uh, it's, it's a magnificent thing to watch. I mean, this is a... So going back to that, you know, the movie about a beautiful mind. I mean, that's a beautiful mind, and uh, what he's done, I don't think will ever, not only not be accomplished. I don't think anybody's going to come remotely close. Well, and here's what's amazing to me. Tom Curran was on with me last week. He covers the Patriots for NBC Sports Boston, and you know, we we pointed out the the fact that. When you think about this Patriots team that's been to the Super Bowl for the last five years, forget about the pre-2005 Patriots that won three out of four, just in this decade, right? Think about the Steelers of the 70s, and there were so many obvious Hall of Famers on that Steelers roster. When you think about the Patriots, like, which one of these guys are getting bronze bust? It's going to be Brady, it's going to be Gronkowski, and, like, defensively, who jumps out? And I think Belichick is who jumps out because he does it with so many different guys. He does it with so many guys making contributions. There isn't that nucleus of, oh, yeah, that's a clear-cut Hall of Famer, and I think that's what makes what Belichick's done even more impressive. Well, he turns it over a lot, too. I mean, there's, there's a lot of – when you look at any aspect of that team – a lot of guys come and go fairly rapidly. I mean, Ty Law got in, okay, but that's the you know the the early days of the of the dynasty on defense. One other guy on offense, by the way, Mike. Lest we forget, and I thought about this immediately about four or five minutes into the Super Bowl. Julian Edelman. I'm now putting Julian Edelman in the Hall of Fame if I have a vote. I mean, wow. No, I I just have to because he's such a game changer. 
and he's turned so many games around. And you go back to, you know, in, outside of like Randy Moss, uh, and I remember talking to Brady. We did a game in oh maybe two thousand six in Denver, and they'd already won three Super Bowls. And I'm sitting with Tom, and I said, "Who's your number one receiver?" And it's like he, he thought he had to think about it because they had so many, you know, guys who were basically the same. They bring in Moss, that kind of changed the dynamic. But apart from that, you know, uh, th- they have a lot of guys who do a lot of similar things. But Edelman, at this point in his career and life, to get that free when you know they're going to go to him, that's amazing to me. So I'm, I'm putting him, you know, if I had a ballot, I'm putting him in. I just think he's he's that, that different, and he's made, not that he's made, you know, Brady's going to be great with anybody, but it certainly hasn't hurt Tom. Now, defensively, that's a great question. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know who you would put in from that defense. I don't. Uh, there's nobody who really, I mean, they have a lot of really good players, obviously. You know, McCordy and Chung and Hightower, but that's not, we're not talking can caliber. But uh, it's clearly a situation where Bill has been able to mold this into a spectacular unit and get the job done almost every year. I'm fascinated by your faith in Edelman because I've, I started off very staunchly in the camp that Edelman could get in at some point, but hasn't done enough yet, especially regular season. He's 148th, I believe, on all-time catches, 248th, I believe, on all-time receiving yards. But in the postseason, he's number two behind Jerry Rice in catches and yardage, and he's had impactful plays, the catch against the Falcons in Super Bowl 51, the MVP performance a week and a half ago. And it's almost like a Lynn Swan factor, Al, where Lynn Swan's regular season numbers, even you know when, when you consider it was a different era, even then they were not good. And postseason, Super Bowl ten, that got him his bust in Canton. So how do you reconcile a guy who isn't dominant in the regular season, but something comes over him in the postseason, something comes over him in the Super Bowl, and we've seen it multiple times now with Julian Edelman. My, my thought is he can get there. He needs to do more. Uh, now you, between you and Tom Curran and I arguing about it last week, I'm starting to think that maybe he doesn't need to do that much more. Well, I think he might have to do some more. I'm not look. He's not going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. I don't. I don't believe unless he does over the next two or three years. I just think I look at him. He's the go-to guy, and they've been going to him for a long time in in huge situations. And again, a lot of the postseason numbers are. Uh, contingent upon the fact he get into the postseason to begin with. We understand that he's played a ton of postseason games. It just seems to me, I put a little bit of a premium on guys who, when push comes to shove and the game is on the line and you really need to play, you make the play. And again, that's something that maybe you can't look at analytically the way you look at some of the other statistics and the numbers and all of the rest. But just maybe in my mind's eye, I just see Edelman making gigantic plays at the most opportune times or the times when you really have to have something happen good for your team. So that probably has a little bit to do with it as opposed to, you know, putting up all of these great numbers that uh, certainly would facilitate an earlier entry into the Hall of Fame. But I think you're right. I mean, I'm putting him into the Hall of Fame as of right now because the Super Bowl is so fresh in our minds, but maybe he Maybe he does need a little bit more, but boy, you think about a guy who comes up big in the big moments, he's right there. 
hey, he could be the Super Bowl MVP again next year. I mean, that, that, that's the thing. They're not going away. And, and I know once they locked in a bye this year, because they had that stumble against the Dolphins and they lost in Pittsburgh, and some people were assuming that the window was closing, but then they win their last two. The other things fall their way. They get that, that bye. And that's when I said, well, forget about this, because I think the experience factor, and that's one of the reasons why Edelman makes those big plays in those big spots, because it's old hat for him. It's old hat for Tom Brady. It's old hat for Josh McDaniels. It's old hat for Bill Belichick while they're facing people who are freaked out by the moment because they've never been in the moment before. And, and I think as long as you've got the basic physical ability to do what your brain is telling you to do, the experience factor is overwhelmingly positive for the Patriots. And as long as those guys can keep doing what they've done, I think they're going to be back there next year. And I think they're going to be back there the year after that. Yeah, it's a big deal. You know, it's so funny when you're talking about they have a stumble against Miami. Of course, you know, you had the crazy play at the end of the game. Uh, a couple of years ago, they got off to a bad start. They were last in the league in defense, et cetera, et cetera. But, Mike, you know, let's go back to 2014. Kansas City on a Monday night. And that's the famous, you know, Belichick after the game. We're on to Cincinnati. So whatever happens, if it's untoward or if it's bad or I don't want to say disastrous because the way they've rebounded, no matter what it is, Belichick moves on. I mean, you talk about selective amnesia. I mean, the game is over. That game is over. It's what's next. And this team has always been great at what's next. And they, they don't let anything fester inside the locker room. Uh, whatever it is, you can have all of this noise outside. And I mean, how many stories have been written about, oh, it's the destruction of the team and Kraft and Belichick and Brady, blah, 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 blah. Really? Meanwhile, you know, they hoist a little Barney trophy every, every year or two. It's crazy. You know, we talk about Hall of Fame. I'm wondering at what point, and you mentioned what Robert Kraft has done for this team. He's owned it 25 years now. His name never comes up. And I don't know whether it's because he doesn't politic the way others may have. But when you look at, you know, a Jerry Jones getting in and, and he deserves a spot. But at some point, somebody's got to start making this case for the guy who bought the team, entrusted it to Belichick, got out of the way, which I think is the hardest thing for any billionaire to do with the football team that he owns is to get out of the way and trust your people to do their job, support them when they need your support. But he's done it better than anyone ever has. Oh, I think he's a slam dunk to get in. There's no question about that. Uh, he, when you have that record and, and what he's done with that franchise and got a stadium built, you know, I think back to him, mean, people forget, back in the mid-90s after he bought the team, remember they were going to move the team to Hartford. To Hartford, they actually had a press conference with a model of a stadium on the banks of the Connecticut River, and the governor, John Rowland, I think who wound up going to jail, and they were announcing this thing in Hartford back in the 90s. So he couldn't get the stadium. He really wanted to get that stadium done in downtown Boston. Couldn't. But then, you know, builds this, this uh, stadium and, and the surrounding hotels and shops and all of that and turns that into to a big deal. I mean, that's what almost every owner is doing right now in terms of they build a stadium and you have to put the ancillary stuff around it. And just the way he's run that team um, – and not, not only that, on, on top of that, Mike, he has been a huge factor inside the National Football League on so many levels as the chairman of a number of committees. And I'll tell you what, I mean, when, when his legacy is, um, it, it, which already to me is, is cemented, but one of the important aspects with Robert is, can you imagine an owner whose team is going to be 
fined and have suspensions and all of the rest around what's happened with that team and with with the the Flategate and with the the taping of signals years ago. He he has to have worn two hats: the Patriot hat on one side, but on the other side, the league hat. So he's been able to somehow delineate the responsibilities, which to me is amazing. To be able to, on one hand, be very upset, and he had to be, flipped off about what happened with the Flategate and all of the rest. But on the other hand, he had the bigger issue of the National Football League and the perpetuation of what it was becoming and not letting it fall off the rails. And I think he has been internally as influential as any owner I can remember in any sport. And for the most part, I mean, he's done a a yeoman, yeoman work in this area. And when you look at how the, where the league is right now and all of the rest, I mean, you got to give him a lot of credit on both ends, not only for the great franchise, but uh, you know, keeping the league on the rails in many, many ways. For two decades, the annual question about the NFL was when will it put a team back in Los Angeles? And I remember vividly, Al, you were the first one to say it won't be one, it will be two. And here we are, multiple years in, to having two teams in Los Angeles, the Chargers and the Rams. From your perspective living out there, how do you think those teams are doing and what do they need to do to better resonate with the fan base? Well, I don't want to sound like a broken record because you and I, I think, began to talk about this four or five years ago. And I always said, as somebody who first moved here to go to high school, moved away, and so I know, I know Southern California pretty well. The first time I went to the Coliseum in Los Angeles was in 1958. I was a kid. My father took me to a Rams-Bears game, and the attendance was 100,470. 400,470. We even showed a picture of it. We had a game here last year on Sunday night. We showed a, a shot of that. George Hallis against Sid Gilman. Etc. Etc. Southern California and this area was about half as big at that point. We have 20 million people who are available to, to drive to a game within an hour and a half. We have a 65,000 seat stadium being built. You can't tell me they can't fill it up. From what I understand, you know, and that stadium right now, Mike, is probably 70 percent complete somewhere in that area, and they're going to open up that stadium next year, 2020 play the Super Bowl there following the 2021 season. It is going to be off the charts spectacular. As beautiful as, you know, Jerry World is in, in Arlington, and Jerry was instrumental in, you know, giving Stan Kroenke some advice as to some of the things he should do here. This stadium is going to be very different, very, uh, I mean, spectacular doesn't do justice to it. Anyway, this is a, a roundabout way of saying it's, it's a no-brainer you sell out. With the Rams, the Rams, I think, are doing extremely well right now in terms of selling whatever it is, personal seat license, whatever they're calling it, uh, and tickets and all of the rest. And, of course, the fact that they've been a very good team for two years doesn't hurt that. Chargers are doing better. Team looked, looked good this year. But it's still the area is so big. You have so many people to, to draw from. And I look at you know cities like Jacksonville and Nashville and Charlotte, which the metro area is maybe one-tenth of what Southern California is, and they're able to sell enough tickets in most circumstances in most years. So I think, now that both teams are here, the Rams, in, the Rams are going to be, you know, the interesting thing is, Mike, there always has to be an alpha dog in a two-team town, whatever the sport is. 
you know, is it the Yankees or the Mets? It's always kind of been the Yankees. Is it the Giants or the Jets? It's always been the Giants. Uh, is it the Rangers or the Devils or the Islanders in hockey? Of course we know what that is. And it's going to be the same thing here. But I still think, even though the Chargers will not be the alpha dog, they're going to do very well. And by the way, that franchise is worth a heck of a lot more in Los Angeles than it was in San Diego. And people keep talking about them maybe moving back. But, Mike, the reason they moved is the same reason that every team has moved in the last 20 years. You need a facility. And they couldn't get a facility built in San Diego. For what, you know, for what it's worth, you know, who pays for what and all of that. I don't want to get into all of that because that's a complex issue. But, but they moved up here. They lost their kind of like core fan base in San Diego. Even though enough, enough people live in northern San Diego County who maybe still will go to the Charger games. But they'll do fine. They'll do fine, and they're worth a heck of a lot more up here. And I think in time, there's no question in my mind both teams will succeed. My theory has been that when you don't have any team in L.A. for 20 years and you have that many people, they've got license to follow any team they want. So there are pockets, significant pockets of fans of pretty much every team in the NFL. So when that team comes to town to play the Chargers or the Rams, you have a very motivated fan base that rushes out to get tickets to the game, boxes out the Rams fans and the Chargers fans because they want those tickets because that's the one time in either every four years, every one year, however, every two years that they're going to be able to see them. And I feel like that dynamic's got to subside a little bit, and those people have to be replaced by kids who grow up locking onto the Chargers or the Rams, different from the generation of kids who grew up saying, hey, I can pick any team I want. You're exactly right. We didn't have football here for all of those years. The people say, hey, I became a Packer fan or I became a Cowboy fan. But, you know, there are Packer fans in every city around the country. I mean, they just want to those teams that that they cross all boundaries and people love them, the Steelers a little bit like that, the Cowboys. The Cowboys engender love and hate both, which is, you know, interesting on an emotional basis. That is true out here. You know, it's, it's, it's a weird situation with every sport out here. I mean, you know what a gigantic hockey fan I am. And so I go to a lot of Kings games and Vancouver comes to town. And a third of the arena has Vancouver jerseys. I'm going, what? What, what happened? How did this happen? They're always going to – so you have plenty of, 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 of visiting fans. It's not a bad thing uh, because it, it, it fills seats and, and uh, it creates a little bit of a – maybe an extra buzz in a stadium when you got the fans going back and forth. But I think, I think you really hit the nail on the head with the fact that without a team for all of those years, it was really – a loyalty issue that, that will begin to come to the fore now that kids will grow up and the Rams and the Chargers will be their hometown teams. The Rams score 54 points week 11 of the regular season. 11 weeks later, they're held to three points by the Patriots. How does Sean McVay turn the page on that? He's got to be shell-shocked by what happened. You have to doubt the very core of everything you're doing when you have a game like that where your offense produces only three points. What's the biggest takeaway that you think he should have from that experience? I think the experience itself, what he, what he went through that day, I think you go back and you look at how you planned for that game and what happened. And the Rams did a lot of what they were doing during their regular season. I mean, they, they, they would come up. I mean, it was very different than the greatest show on turf, even though we were putting up a ton of points. 
if they were coming up with those very tight formations and running a lot of basically the same plays out of those formations, and it worked for a good part of the year. It did not work against the Chicago Bears on a Sunday night. They lost the following week to Philadelphia also on a Sunday night and then sort of got it back together again, but then, you know, clearly outmatched, overmatched in the in the Super Bowl on every level. I look at that, too. I think, look, I don't know what the deal is with Todd Gurley. They say that, you know, he wasn't hurt, but, Mike, you tell me, and I'm not, I, I don't know anything more than what other people know. I don't know if he was or he wasn't, but something had to be going on for him not to play as much as he should have in the Super Bowl. So I don't think, I think, I've gotten to know Sean pretty well. I have, I think this guy is very different. I think he's brilliant. And we know he's got a photographic mind and all of that, but he also, he sees things. He, he, he really gets it. And sometimes I'm around him, I'm thinking, this guy can't be 32 or 33 years old. He's, he's just too smart. He's just too uh, experienced in, in ways that we don't even know about. So I think that's what you do. I don't think you panic in any in any way, I think you go back and you try to figure out, okay, what happened? Why did it happen? What do you want to do differently? But that's the National Football League. I mean, teams that look great for a while and then all, all of a sudden don't look great, you, you just don't throw the whole plan out the window. You can't. And I still have a lot of faith in Jared Goff. I think he still showed me plenty, obviously, last year and this past season. So I'm not sure... You go in there and you make any wholesale changes. And I'll, I would bet they're going to figure it out, and they'll be pretty close to what they were in the middle of the season in 2018 when we look forward to 2019. That's just my guess. Well, and with Jared Goff, I think the key is getting him to the point where – you know, when you have those championship opportunities, when Brandon Cooks pops th- uh, free and throws his hand in the air like Randy Moss used to, and he's wide open in the end zone, you've got to see him. And when you do see him, you've got to throw a rifle shot in there. You can't lob it. You can't. That that is your moment. That's your opportunity. That's when everything lines up for you to do that one thing that allows you to be be a champion and he had a chance he didn't do it so the question is does that become something that perpetuates and he does that anytime he has an opportunity like that or does he the next time he gets that chance punch it through and get it done i think he'll he will improve through the years he's a really smart guy uh i think he's got a lot of talent i think he'll look back at that look tom brady threw an interception on his first pass of the game guys are going to make mistakes so for what it's worth, he made a mistake in that particular situation. Obviously, you know, should have you know, thrown it with a lot more velocity. But I'll tell you why I give him a lot of credit. You go back to that New Orleans game, forget the end of the game. I'm talking about the, the beginning of the game when the Rams looked like they are going to self-destruct right off the bat and Goff can't hear McVeigh calling the plays in and they look as discombobulated as a team can look for a quarter and a half and came back and won the game in New Orleans. That showed me a lot that day. I mean, here's a guy you couldn't have gotten off to a worse start than the Rams got off to in New Orleans. And obviously, you know, under very different circumstances, they came away winning the NFC. But I, I, thought, I saw a lot from Jared Goff in that game. And I think you know, this guy, look, do you ever put anything behind you? I don't know. I get, You try to. I mean, maybe you should call Belichick and ask him, how you put things <laughs> Maybe the, maybe that's the answer. But look, this is a move-on world. You've got to move on. 
And I think the Rams are very capable of moving on. I think they will. Well, and Brady's a prime example. Look at the the disappointment at the end of Super Bowl Fifty Two, the game that that you and Chris did. The you know the strip sack as they have an opportunity to get down the field, and they immediately reset to zero and zero. They immediately forget about it, and then they move forward. I think the NFL would like us all to forget about what happened at the end of the Rams Saints game. It was just a curious turn of events. It was a weird outcome. It was very bizarre how the NFL just refused to acknowledge it for a week and a half. What do you think the league needs to do, if anything at all, to avoid that kind of an outcome again in a moment like that, when you're talking about either a berth in a Super Bowl or a Super Bowl victory, turning on an obvious failure to spot a blatant violation of the rules? I don't have the answer, Mike. I've thought about this a lot. I really, you know, I thought about how you can rectify, enhance, improve the whole system. I don't have, I don't have the answer. But I will say this. The one thing that I heard speculated about that I would not like to see happen is to say, hey, look, we get to the last five minutes or we get to the last two minutes, and it's more important, so make it reviewable then. Look, what happened in the first 57 minutes of that game made the last three minutes what they were. I mean, you got to a point, it's, it's, it's as if to say, you know, if it's in the last three minutes more important than the first 57, not really in a way. I mean, look, there was a face mask call uh, against Jared Goff. They could have called. They didn't. That might have changed the dynamic. That might have changed what the score was at that point. I don't have the answer here. I don't, look, it's the hardest thing the National Football League has to deal with. You have judgment calls. You and I know, I mean, it's an old cliche, you can call a penalty on every play. You can call multiple penalties on every play. What's holding, what's not holding, what's pass interference, what's not. I mean, it is it is what it is in that regard. So I don't have the answer to this. I just don't want to see them fool around with it's more important when it happens at the end of the game than it is at some other point during the game. I also think that, you know, when you looked at that play, and I watched I'm watching on television like most of America at that point. It's a bang-bang play. Is it pass interference? I don't know. And then, of course, you know, you, you break it down and you go frame by frame, and obviously it's pass interference. It's how much we know what it was. But so many calls are made that are missed like that. Clearly it happened in a situation where it looks like, under the circumstances, uh, that the, the Saints are going to win the game, and they probably would have, but who knows, maybe you get a blocked field goal that's run back for a touchdown by the Rams. I don't know. You never know what's going to happen. This is a crazy sport that is very, very difficult to officiate, and I don't have an answer here. You know, we've been talking about this, Mike, for 32 years. Remember they put replay in in 1986, and they took it out, then they put it back in, then you get challenges and all the rest of it. So it is, it's an ongoing thing. You know, the funny thing, Mike, is that even under these circumstances, and this is something the National Football League did not want to have happen, a team going to the Super Bowl under the, those circumstances. But you know what I, I found? The following week, when it becomes the number two or three thing on the network news, not the sports news, the network news, and then people who are only tangentially interested in football all want to know, hey, what happened here? What was that all about? And then you, I can't tell you the number of times I had to explain to people what that was all about. So, in effect, as controversial as that was, it, 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 not, it didn't help the league, but people became more interested in what was going on. And that's one of the crazy things about the National Football League. But, Mike, when you come up with the answer, I want you to call me collect. 
Well, I, they're going to have to come up with an answer, Al. Here's why, and I'll leave you with this thought. The commissioner, when he finally addressed the situation at his press conference before the Super Bowl, the talking point that clearly had been crafted at 345 Park Avenue was it's a game played by humans, coached by humans, and officiated by humans. Well, the first two groups of humans, what players and coaches do, that's what's supposed to happen. That's how games organically and naturally should get resolved. The idea that there's some level of acceptance of errors by the human beings who are officials and not a full-blown effort to get the officiating to the point where the mistakes are as close to zero as possible. As legalized gambling spreads from sea to shining sea, that's when the risk increases that someone from Congress is going to say, hey, we regulate the hell out of these publicly traded companies. Maybe it's time we start regulating professional sports. The commissioner gets called before a subcommittee. Tough questions get asked, and the message will be, NFL, you either fix this or we're going to fix it for you. And I think that's the moment where the NFL takes it seriously and says, we got to find a way to avoid these human errors from our officials. I think they've already thought about that. And by the way, you know who will benefit most from all of the stuff that you're talking about, Mike? Lawyers. Think of the billable hours that will go into the investment <laughs> and, and all of the rest. Uh yeah, I, but I, I don't know how you get to the point where this game can be officiated perfectly. I mean, to me, look, it's every sport. Baseball, is it a ball or is it a strike? If it's, if it's not strike three and it's ball three and the guy hits a home run, I mean, that changed the, that changed the course of, of that game and maybe even a World Series. I did the World Series back in 1985 when Don Denkinger made the bad call at first base in Game 6, which led to a Kansas City win, which led to Kansas City winning in, in Game 7 the next night, 11 to nothing, instead of St. Louis winning the World Series. Oh, by the way, so I just parenthetically, since we're on a podcast, Mike, and you have time here, and I do too, uh, a 60-second story about that. So Whitey Herzog is the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals. And, of course, the call goes against him the night before. Uh, Kansas City wins the game. And now you go to Game 7 instead of the Cardinals going home for a parade. So it's game, so now Don Denkinger, because he was the first base umpire in Game 6, is the plate umpire. So now he's got to come out and, and get the lineup cards from Whitey Herzog and from, from Dick Houser, the two managers. Anyway, that game winds up with Kansas City getting a couple of runs in the second or third inning, and then they break it open with a big rally in the fifth inning, on top of it, Joaquin Andohar comes on in relief for St. Louis. It's Steve Balboni who throws one inside at his head. He gets thrown out of the game. Now the score is like 8 nothing. The Royals still have a couple of men on base. Andohar gets thrown out of the game by Denkinger. And here comes Whitey, and Whitey comes out to argue, and Whitey gets thrown out of the game in the fifth inning. So the game is over. Brett Saberhagen pitches a shutout. 11 nothing is the final score. Kansas City wins the World Series. And the first question to Whitey Herzog in the press conference after the game, Whitey, how can a manager possibly get thrown out of the seventh game of a World Series? And Whitey said, I'd seen enough. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That anyway, is that's good. A, well, long, a long-winded answer to, you know, Mike, I just, <laughs> I have the answers to a few things. 
like what I'm going to have for dinner tonight, but I, I don't know how you fix this uh, officiating thing. Good luck. Well, well, it's it'll give us something to talk about. Jeff Fisher told me one time about uh, you know ideas that I had to improve officiating and expanding replay when he was on the competition committee, and he said, "Hey, you know, at least it gives you things to talk about." And he's absolutely right; it gives us plenty to talk about. Al, it's been great talking to you as always. I look forward to doing it again. I look forward to seeing you out on the road somewhere and uh, enjoy the off season. Thank you, Mike. You too, even though you're working 365 days a year, but you know, take a day or two off, would you? All right, thank you, pal. Yeah. Thanks again to Al Michaels. That was fantastic. Every time he's been on, he's been great. I feel so guilty about infringing on his time, but I feel like in the offseason he likes talking football because you go from every week, every week, every week, and all the effort that's put into getting ready for every week, and then it's just over, and it's offseason. I know he golfs a lot, and he does a few other things, but I'm I'm hoping that he likes the opportunity to spend some time talking some football because I enjoy having the opportunity to talk to him. Enjoy the opportunity to talk to you. We may do one on Friday. If the news justifies it, we'll do one on Friday. Otherwise, I think Monday's President's Day. Maybe we'll do a President's Day edition of the PFTPM podcast. Regardless, thanks for your continued support of the podcast Friday will be on NBC sports radio, NBCSN, another edition of PFT live. There will be some of the Al Michaels interview played on that. Sorry. Just, I mean, what am I going to do? Not use it in every possible platform that I can. So you'll hear some of that. I think we're going to have Bob Glauber. I think Rodney Harrison is going to join the program tomorrow. Plenty of things to discuss, even during those periodic lulls in the overall NFL news cycle, because it is going to pick up quickly. Scouting combine is a couple couple of weeks away franchise tag designation window opens i believe on tuesday of next week free agency is coming before you know it the draft will be here a lot of things happening in the nfl offseason we'll keep you up to speed on all of it between the pftpm podcast the pft live radio and tv show and around the clock every day of the year no days off profootballtalk.com have a great thursday we'll talk again soon you can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.